This episode is sponsored by Podcorn, a marketplace that connects brands and podcasts for native sponsorships. Podcasting is an engaging form of storytelling, and Podcorn helps create the opportunity for sponsorships to be the same. This means that brands can connect with listeners on a more intimate nature by being part of the story through host-read ads, interview segments, and topical discussions. It's free to post a campaign and really easy to use. Podcorn uses technology to help match sponsorships to the most relevant podcasts. As a podcaster myself, I absolutely enjoy using Podcorn. I'm always on the lookout for interesting cases, people, and even products and services that I think my listeners would be interested in. With Podcorn, I have control over which sponsors I feel would be a good fit for my show and listeners. Each prospective sponsor also has the same choice. So if you're a podcaster like me or a company or brand looking for an innovative way to get your name out there, head on over to podcord.com. Remember, it's free to set up a campaign or to register as a podcast. And the site's really easy to use. That's podcorn.com. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. All cases and stories covered by this podcast are true stories involving real people. The opinions of the host and any interviewees are simply that, opinions. The credibility of any witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. The charred remains of Philip Blake were discovered the morning of Monday, January 6, 1936, by neighbor and fellow settler Otto Blakeney, who was on his way to see Philip for some provisions. After discovering Philip's partially cremated body, Otto frantically searched the smoldering ruins for Philip's wife and two small children. After only finding Philip and the skeleton of their cat in what was left of the family's two-room cabin, he started searching the surrounding property. About 200 yards away, near the ballast pit road, lay the nearly nude body of Bertha Lake, with a halo of blood drenched in the snow surrounding her, her arms outstretched as though searching for her babies, and a little further from that was the frozen body of little Jackie Lake, left to die in the freezing temperatures. This is episode 21 of True Crime Real Time, part 2 of the Lake Family Tragedy, Extortion and Murder in the Backwoods, and this is your host, Genevieve Germain. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. 
Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. If you haven't listened to part one of Extortion and Murder in the Backwoods, or it's been a while, I suggest you go back and listen to that first one before listening to this episode. To give you a brief overview of where we left off, Otto Blakeney made the gruesome discovery of the murder of Philip Lake, his wife Bertha, and the death due to exposure of 21-month-old son Jackie on Monday, January 6th. Philip had been shot in the back of the head and the cabin was lit on fire to either extinguish the family or cover the murder up that was committed. Bertha Lake, partially clothed in bare feet, grabbed little Jackie and was running from the cabin, presumably for help, when she was chased and beaten with a blunt object, which was the cause of her death. 21-month-old Jackie was left in the freezing snow to wander. He, too, was also partially clothed, and his death was the result of hypothermia. Bertha and Jackie's bodies were partially covered by a thin layer of snow and were frozen. He couldn't find the body of six-month-old Betty Ann. After finishing his initial search, Otto traveled two miles to another neighbor, Omar Lutz, who worked for the Canadian Railway and who also had a telephone. Omar then called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to tell of the crime. Several members of the RCMP attended the scene and the investigation started immediately. There, they did a preliminary search of the charred ruins and the surrounding country. Dr. Caldwell, the county coroner, also was on scene to view the bodies before they were moved. At first glance, they didn't know that Philip had been shot in the back of the head. He was so badly burned, almost cremated, and they were only able to identify him by the two gold teeth in his upper jaw. He would later testify at the preliminary hearing and trial to the extent of damage to Philip's body. His body was so badly burned that the legs had been burned off below the knees and the arms to around the elbows. The skull was intact but burned pretty well through that he could not recognize the brain. He couldn't recall seeing the genital organs. His clothing was mostly burned off as well, except for a few buttons that had melded into his remains. At first, they did not know that he suffered a gunshot wound. It wouldn't be until later that this was discovered and would play an important part in the cases against the accused. Although his skull was intact, it was still very fragile. Constable Kent testified in court that when he touched one of the gold teeth in the scorched skull at the scene, it dropped out of place. His remains were found in the kitchen part of the two-room shack on what remained of a small metal bed frame. This is where he typically slept. The identification of his remains were initially done by Otto Blakeney and Omar Lutz, and were later confirmed by his dentist. His identification was only confirmed by the two gold teeth in his upper jaw. About 200 yards from the cabin, near or on Ballast Pit Road, lay Bertha, face up, clothed only in a nightslip that appears to have been only covering her hips. At the time of her death, it looked as though this had been torn away from her. She had suffered a blow to the head, causing a large laceration. She bled profusely, so much so that it created a halo of blood spanning up to six feet around her. The impressions in the snow gave evidence of a struggle. It looked as though she fled the cabin with her toddler, both of them barely clothed, going in the direction of Omar Lutz's home when she was attacked. The coroner indicated that her cause of death was due to blunt force trauma. He indicated that the blow was so forceful that there was no way that this could have been done accidentally or by falling unless she were to fall from a very high distance. 
Her body lay there for a bit, however not excessively long, as she was partially covered by a thin layer of snow, which had fallen during the early morning. A forensic autopsy was completed by doctors Malasson and Landry, who indicated that her cause of death was a compound fracture to the skull and lacerations of the brain. 20 to 40 feet away was the body of 21-month-old Jackie, who was left to die in the freezing cold after his mother was attacked. Whoever attacked the family would have known that the temperatures were frigid and that there was no way a toddler, barely clothed, would survive the night. The coroner indicated his cause of death was due to exposure, or hypothermia. The bodies of Bertha and Jackie were initially identified by Omar, Otto, and Dr. Caldwell, who had visited Bertha in a medical capacity in the recent past. Her remains were later confirmed again by her sister. During the search, they could not find the remains of six-month-old Elizabeth Ann, or Betty Ann. Initially, they presumed she had died in the fire and that her remains were cremated, given the heat and the extent of cremation of her father, a burly lumberjack, compared to that of her small body. A barrel of a rifle and a bowie knife were found in and around the ruins. The RCMP quickly saw footprints leading away from the home and, given the size, they assumed they were that of men's feet. Eventually, they saw two sets of footprints which joined up with a smaller pair. The smaller pair appeared to be pacing or standing in one area for a while, and when joined by the other two, walked along with them. They were able to follow the prints for quite a while. The tracks were heading towards the city of Moncton. Along the way, they found a lone, worn, leather mitten. At the time, Pacific Junction didn't form part of the city of Moncton and was approximately 13 kilometers or 8 miles from Barry Mills and a little bit further still from the city proper. Just before the train tracks leading to Barry Mills Station, the RCMP came across several oval-shaped imprints that looked as though they were from the butt of a rifle. They lost track of all tracks around the Barry Mills Station as their prints blended in with many others. The investigation took approximately three to four days. During this time, the RCMP interviewed many people. The first interesting piece of information to come out of these interviews was the statement completed by Omar Lutz, the CN Rail officer who lived about two miles from the lakes. They were also the last to see Philip Lake alive, aside from his murderer. Philip visited their home the morning of January 5th to pick up a bottle of medicine that Omar had picked up for him when he went into Moncton. He and his wife also informed law enforcement that their large police dog started barking non-stop a little after midnight on January 6th and continued to bark running back and forth up Ballast Pit Road for about 15 minutes. Their dog typically didn't bark without cause, so they became concerned, got out of bed to look outside for any potential intruders. But after going outside and checking to make sure no one was around his fox pens, he called the dog back and went back to bed. Phillips, Bertha's, and Jackie's bodies were discovered the morning of January 6th. The entire cabin was completely burned and a thin layer of snow partially covered Bertha and Jackie's bodies. It had snowed in the early morning. A cabin of that size may only take 30 minutes to be completely engulfed in flames and collapse. When discovered, the timber and ruins were still smoldering. Given the time of year and the climate, the burned structure would likely smolder for 6 to 24 hours. The estimated time of death and the fire would be the night of January 5th or very early morning of January 6th. Shortly after Bertha's death was confirmed, the RCMP were approached by Marshall Ring, Bertha's estranged husband. He was an initial person of interest for the crimes. He and Bertha had separated approximately four years before her death when they both were living in St. John, which is about 93 miles or 150 kilometers from Pacific Junction. And then she went to live with Philip Lake. A few months before her death, he had moved to Moncton and was working at the Moncton Hotel. 
Marshall indicated that he never met Philip and had never been to their residence. He was later ruled out as a suspect. This time, it wasn't the husband. As he had an alibi, he was working at the Moncton Hotel from 11pm January 5th to 4am January 6th. During this time, there was also rumor about two, quote, tramps, quote, jumping from a freight train not far from Pacific Junction. The RCMP investigated this potential lead, but it was a dead end. The RCMP took statements from Otto Blakeney and Omar Lutz. Otto confirmed that he had been visiting with the lakes on January 1st and then again on January 2nd. He also let them know of some other people who had been visiting the lakes on that same day, one of which was Earl O'Brien, an 18-year-old hunter who often stayed in one of the lake's oat buildings while hunting. He confirmed being at the lake's residence on January 2nd. He also mentioned that Otto was there as well as Arthur Bannister, a 19-year-old resident of Barry Mills, and told an interesting tale of the events on January 2nd. He told law enforcement of visiting the lake residence on the 2nd and staying all night in one of the outbuildings that is temporarily equipped as a camp, which he stayed in frequently when out on hunting trips. He wasn't the only one staying at the lake's outbuilding that night. Arthur Bannister had arrived at the lake residence with a 22 gauge rifle and spent the night as well. At around midnight, two other individuals came to the lake property and called Arthur out. These two individuals were Daniel Bannister and Francis Bannister, Arthur's older brother and younger sister. In a subsequent interview with Otto Blakeney, Sergeant Peters asked him if he knew the Bannisters. At this point, he recalled an odd story that Philip had told him a few months before. He indicated that Philip told him of an evening that both Arthur, 19, and his older brother, Daniel, 20, had visited the home one day and told Philip that they were after Betty Ann. Seems as though they wanted to adopt the baby, but Phil took this as a joke as he never had intentions of giving up his daughter. Two separate settlers in the area came forward and stated that they saw Arthur walking toward Pacific Junction with a rifle and snowshoes at around 5pm on January 5th. Things were leading law enforcement to look at these banisters a little more closely. Daniel was known to the Moncton police as he was arrested when he was around 15, but they wouldn't divulge on what charge. They started interviewing the Bannister neighbors and associates, and here's where things became interesting, as they would soon unravel a story of extortion, kidnapping, and murder. Here's what they learned when interviewing neighbors and associates. The neighbors had talked about the family and mentioned that May Bannister had recently had a baby girl. May had been separated from her husband for 10 years, so they were wondering who the father would be. The neighbors were quick to mention a local man by the name of Milton Trites, May's boyfriend. Milton owned a pawn shop or secondhand store in the area, and his home was close to the Bannister's home. They met when May became his housekeeper. Law enforcement interviewed Milton Trites, a slender, bronzed, local 38-year-old man. He confirmed that he and May were in an intimate relationship and that he had fathered a daughter with her. He told law enforcement that May told him at the end of November that she was pregnant and would be due in December and was asking for money to help pay for supplies. He indicated that at first he was mad but then was getting excited about the thought of having a child. He said he paid for a crib and pram and had been contributing to weekly groceries and other household items. During his initial interview, he also mentioned other frequent visitors to the Bannisters and mentioned Albert Powell, who was a freight clerk and part-time social worker with the Salvation Army. The next logical step was to do an initial interview with Albert Powell. He said that he used to frequent the Bannister home as a social worker and friend, which started in 1934. Law enforcement asked if he had recognized the mitten and bowie knife, which they were asking all interviewees. This time, they had an answer. 
Albert thought that the Bowie knife might be the property of Arthur Bannister, and the worn leather mitten looked like a pair he had seen Daniel Bannister wear. The RCMP asked when the last time he was at the Bannister home, and he said he had stopped going at the end of November when they had a falling out. It was time to visit the Bannister home. All four of the Bannister children were home, but May Bannister was out with the baby when they visited. Daniel and Arthur were lazily sitting around while Francis was playing with a life-size doll and 13-year-old Mary was making lunch. He asked Daniel and Arthur about the knife and mitten. Both Arthur and Daniel admitted that these were their items. Daniel even went to fetch the matching mitten. Law enforcement asked when they lost the items. Arthur said they were lost on January 2nd when hunting and visiting the lakes. When they asked Arthur where he was January 5th, he said that he went to bed at 7.30. They took Arthur in for additional questioning as they had two eyewitnesses confirming seeing him walking between 5 and 6 p.m. on January 5th towards Pacific Junction, away from the family home. After realizing that they had some circumstantial evidence against him, he provided an initial statement admitting that he, Daniel, and Francis were visiting the lake home on January 5th. He provided the statement saying that he, Daniel, Francis, and Philip were in the main room drinking and that Bertha was in another room resting with their kids. The drinking party suddenly turned into a fight when Philip started sexually harassing their 15-year-old sister. The brothers started arguing with Philip and a fight ensued. One thing led to another when suddenly Philip threw a stick of firewood just as Bertha walked out of the other room and she was subsequently hit in the head and then Arthur threw it back at Lake which he tumbled over onto a cot knocking over an oil lamp on the way which set the cabin on fire. Bertha then in her nightdress grabbed the toddler Jackie and fled the home out of fear running to get help. Arthur, Daniel and Francis terrified ran and tripped through the snow to the railroad tracks and then from there to home. He was subsequently charged with the murder of Philip Lake. During the next two days, the RCMP learned that May Bannister had applied to adopt a baby girl from the New Brunswick Protestants' Orphans Home in St. John, New Brunswick in February 1935, nine months before she told Milton Trites that she was about to have his baby. The orphanage confirmed that she wasn't able to adopt a baby. The police case manager remembered the story that Otto Blakeney told him where Philip had told him sometime in the fall, just before the first snowfall, that he was visited by Arthur and Daniel Bannister, who were looking to adopt his infant daughter, Betty Ann. It was time to question Milton Trites and Albert Powell again. Milton Trites was questioned about when he first saw his daughter. He had said that May went away in December to have the baby and came back on December 29th. She didn't let him see their daughter for two days, and the first time she was wrapped in blankets sleeping in her crib. May wouldn't let Milton get close to the baby for fear of germs and not wanting to wake up the sleeping baby. He was telling her that they should have her christened soon and hold a party, and was growing anxious to be able to hold and interact with his daughter. He also said that on January 6th, May Bannister visited his home to see him and asked if he would like to come see his daughter. He asked her if they could name her Thera Milton Trites. He was finally able to see his daughter close and to hold her for the first time on January 6th. He then went out to get provisions for the baby and groceries for the whole Bannister family. In further discussions with Albert Powell, he advised the falling out with the Bannisters in November was when May Bannister accused him of having sexual relations with her underage daughter Mary, who was 13, and told him that if Mary was pregnant, that he would need to provide support. He did admit to paying a total of $230 towards the family expenses, which would be about $4,200 in 2020, a significant amount for someone to just give of the goodness of their heart. 
although he vehemently denied any wrongdoing with the underage girl. The RCMP visited the Bannister home on January 9th. However, May Bannister would not let them enter the home and they didn't have a warrant. But they did seem to bring in Francis and Daniel for questioning. After a period of questioning, Frances provided a statement implicating her siblings, but not her mother, in a plot to kidnap Philip and Bertha Lake's daughter. The plan was that Arthur would go ahead of them to the lake home and that Daniel and Frances would meet him there at around midnight. They would kidnap the baby and leave. Remember, May returned home on December 29th after allegedly having a baby, and Milton, her boyfriend, was getting anxious to see and hold his daughter. They attempted to fulfill their plot on January 2nd, but when Francis and Daniel arrived at midnight, they were told to leave as Earl O'Brien was there. They decided to attempt this again on January 5th. Arthur left the home at around 4 p.m. with a 22 caliber gauge rifle, and Francis and Daniel left the house at 8 p.m. Daniel had taken a large hunting knife. So Arthur took the 22 gauge rifle, and Daniel had taken a large hunting knife. When they arrived at Lake Cabin, Arthur had come out to meet them. He then went into the cabin. Frances said she heard a noise that sounded like a shot and that shortly after that he came out and handed the baby to her. This was around midnight on the 6th. She said that she ran out to the road with Benny Ann while Arthur ran to the side of the house where the barn was to set fire to the house. While she was running, she also heard a woman scream. She had screamed for a while and then she suddenly stopped. Frances did not look back. Shortly after that, the boys, Arthur and Daniel, caught up to her and she turned and saw that the cabin was on fire. As they continued walking, they could hear the incessant barks of the Luke's dog. Arthur handed the rifle to Daniel and then carried Betty Ann the rest of the way. She advised that they returned home at 3.20 a.m. Arthur entered the home first with Betty Ann in his arms and that her mother had taken charge of the baby. Daniel was subsequently arrested for the murder of Philip Lake as he was the owner of the Bowie knife found at the crime scene and his sister implicated him, and Francis was retained as a material witness. The following day, January 10th, the RCMP showed up at the Bannister home with a warrant. There, on the second floor of the impoverished home, lying in a crib was a little baby girl. May Bannister told the police that this was her baby and she was two months old and she had no doctor at the time of birth. Only May and her 13-year-old daughter Mary were home at the time, both boys being arrested the day before and Francis held as material witness. May said that a Mrs. Cool, which is a traveler's aid representative of the Young Women's Christians Association, could validate her story, but Mrs. Cool denied knowing of May having a baby. Just before law enforcement arrested May for kidnapping, she said, You can take the damn baby, but I will not come while there is a drop of blood in me. She was then detained for questioning and the baby, believed to be Betty Ann, as well as 13-year-old Mary, stayed the night with May's boyfriend, Milton Trites. Given the time of the day and that they weren't certain at this time that the baby was in fact Betty Ann. The remains of Philip, Bertha and Jackie were buried the same day. The funeral services were delayed due to law enforcement and the Crown obtaining additional information and photos. Betty Ann Lake was taken in for temporary shelter in hospital the following day. Betty Ann's identity was confirmed by friends and neighbors, as well as Dr. Caldwell and the midwife who helped deliver her, and who had stayed with Bertha for 11 days following the birth. She was identified by a strawberry birthmark located at her hairline. Mary was taken into care by the Salvation Army, seeing as her mother and older siblings were incarcerated. 
Philip Lake's body was exhumed around this time to specifically verify if there was a bullet lodged in his head. A gunshot wound was confirmed and a slug was removed from Philip's skull. The preliminary hearing started on January 13th, just seven days after the bodies of Philip Bertha and Jackie were discovered. During this time, the RCMP had further interviews with Francis, who indicated that as they walked along the railway, Arthur smashed a 22 caliber rifle he had brought with him and tossed the pieces in the bushes. She also testified that her mother was pleased when they arrived home with the baby. On the 24th of January, Francis led the police to the location where the rifle was broken and strewn into the bushes. The butt of the 22 caliber rifle was located, split, and splintered in the snow near the railroad tracks, a quarter mile from Pacific Junction. The barrel of the rifle was found near the same location the following day. The slug recovered from Philip Lake's skull, as well as the 22 caliber rifle butt and barrel, were sent to the office of Dr. Fontaine for analysis. The analysis and comparison was completed by the office of Dr. Rosario Fontaine, a medical, legal, and ballistic expert out of Montreal. Dr. Roussel, ballistic expert from Montreal, said he examined the slug taken from Philip's skull and compared it to those fired from the barrel of the rifle belonging to Arthur Bannister. He indicated that the striations on the bullets he fired from the rifle matched those of the slug lodged in Philip's head. Arthur and Daniel were remanded on January 13 and were both to appear on Wednesday the 15th for a preliminary hearing. The whole event started off a little chaotic, with two different defense counsel going head-to-head over who was to represent the defendants. One of the lawyers threatened to have the whole affair investigated by the Barrister's Society. Each defense counsel maintained that they had prior right to be defense counsel. All Bannisters ended up being represented by Murray Lambert, but not before the other lawyer made some ugly accusations. The preliminary hearings for Daniel Arthur and May Bannister took place between January 15th and February 26th, about a month and a half. All prisoners were being held in Dorchester Jail in Westmoreland County, located directly behind the two-story decaying courthouse. The hearings took a little longer than originally anticipated. There was an eight-day adjournment to mark the morning of King George. During the course of the preliminary hearings, the Crown outlined a motive for the crime. They held that May Bannister wanted a baby to put Milton Trites and Albert Powell under, quote, moral obligation, end quote, and that when May couldn't have a baby on her own, she tried to adopt one, and when that failed, they planned to kidnap the lake baby. During the hearings, there was an accusation brought against a specific RCMP officer by May Bannister, suggesting that they threatened her in order to procure a statement. This accusation was heard by the courts, and the RCMP corporal was fully exonerated. During the preliminary hearing for May Bannister, several people were called as witnesses that basically outlined and showed her passing off a large bundle of blankets as a newborn baby walking the streets in town and of also being a liar. Several testimonies were given by various bed and breakfasts where she had stayed, including the one in December when she had allegedly went away to have her baby. None of the testimonies provided made her out to be an upstanding citizen. Yet none of these altered her emotions like that of Albert Powell. During his testimony, she yelled out saying that she had enough of his lies and threatened to throw something at him. Her defense counsel told her to keep quiet, but she said she wouldn't as he was going on with his lies for too long. True bills were returned by the grand jury against Arthur, Daniel, and May Bannister on February 26th. A true bill is the written decision by a grand jury that it's heard enough evidence from the prosecution to believe that the accused probably committed the crime and should be indicted. So the indictment is then sent to the court and trial dates are scheduled. 
A trial delay was requested by defense counsel due to issues surrounding the statements made by Arthur and Daniel that were not admissible in court, but were leaked to the media at the time. The judge denied the application for trial delay in the trial of Arthur Bannister, the younger of the two brothers, who was scheduled to start March 3rd. Arthur and Daniel were charged with murder of Philip Lake and Bertha Lake, and with kidnapping and abducting their daughter, Betty Ann. May Bannister was facing charges of conspiracy to kidnap, kidnapping, abduction, and the harboring of a stolen child. The courthouse in Dorchester, New Brunswick was packed, so much so that there was standing room only and many people, including the jurors, were staying at the local hotel across the street. Dorchester wasn't a very large town at the time, and it's much smaller even today, but it's very quaint. Many reporters attended the trials from all over the country and from the United States. They described the throngs of people arriving in the cars and some in horses and buggies, lining up against all of the different streets adjoining to the center of town where the courthouse was and the jail. Arthur's trial opened on March 3rd, and he pled not guilty. The case against Arthur was strong, albeit mostly circumstantial. He didn't have an alibi, and he was seen on January 5th walking towards Pacific Junction with a rifle. His rifle was later recovered, and the striations on the slug taken from Philip Lake's skull matched those fired from Arthur's rifle. His sister was the main witness for the prosecution. Betty Ann was taken into court to show everyone the strawberry birthmark on her hairline, which were accompanied by several witnesses that confirmed her identity and the RCMP who confirmed locating her at the Bannister home following a search warrant on the 10th of January. Daniel's mitten, the Bowie knife, and Arthur's rifle were entered into evidence. The trial itself wasn't without some sort of drama or nonsense coming from the stands in the audience. When Otto Blakeney, the first person to discover the deaths of Philip, Bertha, and Jackie, was on stand and was cross-examined on the identity of the baby, admitted that he was a bachelor and didn't know much about babies, Bud had said he'd saw the baby before and that Bertha had showed him the birthmark on New Year's Day. And, after being questioned further whether he was certain the baby was that of Philip Lake, he said he didn't know if she was Philip's but that it must have belonged to Bertha since she had her. With that, the audience started applauding and commenting and the judge had to warn everyone to calm down or the courtroom would be cleared. Frances, Arthur's younger sister, was a reluctant witness. The judge had threatened her with jail term for contempt of court. This was because she couldn't or wouldn't answer the prosecution's question on what Arthur told her when he came out of the lake home and handed her the baby. She didn't seem fazed by the threat, and there is no record that she answered this question in court. Sergeant Peters of the RCMP fainted while being cross-examined, describing the horrific scene and the state of Philip's remains were in. He allegedly was given the two gold teeth to examine at the same time. He was sent home due to illness. Apparently, he had been fighting the flu but didn't want to hold up the trial. Then, on the same afternoon, one of the jurors found out that his house burned down and asked to be excused as a juror, which was flatly denied. But he was given the day to find temporary accommodations for his family. Defense argued on the validity of the ballistics analysis for quite a while and the examination became very heated. Defense counsel also questioned the actual identity of the burned body. Maybe it wasn't Phillips, but his dentist stated he was positive the body was that of Philip Lake based on the dental work. Albert Powell was called to the stand, and the audience couldn't stop whispering all the salacious details of the county's rumors. However, his testimony was short. He described the unique markings on the rifle that enabled him to confirm that it was Arthur Bannister's gun. 
All the while, Arthur sat twirling his hat and grinning almost as though the reality of the situation didn't sink in. Defense counsel tried his best to plant the seed of doubt into the minds of the jurors. The trial lasted eight days and ultimately the jurors only took three hours to deliberate. They came back with a guilty verdict. The judge said he would only pass judgment or sentencing after the trials of Daniel, Arthur's older brother, and May, their mother. However, a murder conviction held a mandatory sentence of death at the time. Arthur was then sent back to his cell. Shortly after conviction, Murray Lambert, Arthur's lawyer, announced that he would appeal the decision. May Bannister's trial started the following day. She too pled not guilty and was being represented by Murray Lambert. This trial also wasn't without disruptions of some kind between the continuous crying of May Bannister and Mary Bannister. Frances herself remained stoic for the most part, although there were moments of crying for her as well. A large blue-eyed mama doll was entered into evidence. This life-size doll was found at the Bannister home and with its squeaker removed so it couldn't say mama. Prosecution claims that Mary used this doll as a substitute baby to help fool Milton Trites and Albert Powell into thinking that either she or Mary had a baby and she could continue to extort money from the two of them until she was able to get a live baby. Frances was once again a witness. However, she would not give testimony of her mother being conspiracist behind the murder kidnap plot. The doll was purchased in December, but Frances testified that it was a Christmas gift for Mary and that the squeaker was removed because Mary didn't like it. Both Albert Powell and Milton Trite said that they never saw May Bannister with the large doll. Nevertheless, a James Sargent testified that he had driven the Bannister family home on Christmas Eve, that May had a bundle and a blue blanket, and when he asked her what she had there, she told him to never mind and not to mention it to Mr. Powell. James Sargent and Albert Powell were acquaintances, so it's very likely that he would have mentioned it. Another witness gave testimony that he had seen May on Christmas Eve walking with this bundle. When asked what she had there, she told him that she had a baby. The prosecution asked him what he replied, and he said, I think I said I was surprised at her. What else may have been said by the witness at the time wasn't heard over the laughter of the spectators in court. He said he encountered May again several days later, and she asked him what he thought of her baby, to which he wasn't able to answer because he stated that he didn't see a baby, just a bundle and a blue blanket. There were frequent objections by the defense counsel to the admissibility of May's alleged statements to the police. He was able to obtain a decision from Chief Justice Barry, the judge, that the alleged statements made by the accused to the Moncton police were attained by practically, quote, third-degree methods, end quote, and therefore were not admissible. The trial closed on March the 18th, six days after it started. May was found guilty of harboring a stolen child. She was acquitted of the two more serious crimes of abduction and conspiracy. Her conviction carried a maximum of three and a half years sentence. There was no evidence presented at court that beyond a reasonable doubt May knew that her children set out to do when they left the home on January 5th. Sentencing would take place after Daniel's trial, and she was led back to her cell at the Dorchester Jail, located directly behind the courthouse. These cases were heavily covered in the media at the time, and there were several letters from readers in parts of Canada and the United States looking to adopt Betty Ann. Daniel's trial started on March 31st. He enters a plea of not guilty. On this same day, Murray Lambert's defense counsel for the Bannisters, submits an appeal for Arthur's conviction. A jury was selected. 
one of which was yours truly's great-grandfather, although we never met. Throughout Daniel's trial, he chewed on his fingers and moved nervously about his chair. His father was in the audience, as was his sister Mary. Frances was once again called as a witness. She testified that neither she nor Daniel knew what was going to happen at the lake residence, and neither of them had the intent of murder when they left the home that day. The Crown was quick to point out that Daniel had left the home with a hunting knife, and as he was arming himself, must have known. Once again, the ballistic expert was called, and the cross-examination by the defense became heated. Chief Justice Barry had to stop him and tell him he wasn't there for him to lecture, and he was only to ask him questions. Then the judge asked if Mr. Lambert was suggesting that the police introduce bogus evidence, and defense counsel exclaimed that that is exactly what he was trying to find out. The judge then advised that the defense did have the opportunity to get their own expert, to which defense counsel said there was no money to bring in their own experts, as the defendants were impoverished. This whole situation really angered the expert, and he interjected that his opinion was strictly impartial. The judge then chimed in not to worry about money, that there wouldn't be much left for anybody after the lawyers get through. Defense counsel once again argued over the admissibility of Daniel's statement provided to the Moncton police when he was a prisoner at the police headquarters. The jury was excluded while the prosecution called witnesses to establish whether or not the statement should be excluded. Ultimately, it was not excluded. Much of the testimony given at Daniel's trial was the same as that given at Arthur's trial, with the exception that a psychiatric evaluation of sorts was completed for Daniel, at the request of the trial judge. Daniel was described as quote, not too bright, end quote, which could have been an induendo for mentally disadvantaged. The doctor gave evidence that Daniel was crafty and knew what's what. Those are actual quotes. The trial ended on April 6th. The judge instructed the jury that when a gang plans a murder, each and every one of them is guilty, regardless of who commits the act itself. Should you come to the conclusion that Daniel Bannister went to Philip Lakes to steal the lake baby and someone did an act that caused death, it is murder. The jury takes seven hours to deliberate. They found him guilty of murder, but brought in a recommendation for clemency. Arthur and Daniel were both sentenced to death at this time, and although Daniel would be granted a second trial, this time taking the stand in his own defense, it would ultimately end the same and he would be found guilty once again. An appeal was sent to the Supreme Court pleading for manslaughter, but this was denied as the Chief Justice stated that there was no reasonable circumstances to show that Lake's death was the result of manslaughter. Arthur was granted a stay of execution as he was named as a potential material witness in Daniel's retrial, although he was never called to the stand. They were both sentenced to hang on September 23, 1936. An initial charge was submitted against Frances and she was being remanded until after the execution. May Bannister was sentenced to three and a half years in jail, but I believe only served a little over half that time. She served her time in Kingston, Ontario. Media at the time indicated that Mary lived with her dad at the Bannister home while her mother was incarcerated. Executioner Arthur Ellis arrived at Dorchester Jail on September 21st to make preparations for the dual hanging of Daniel and Arthur Bannister. The scaffold was in position by the end of the day, within the walls of the county jail. All day, the two could hear the hammering as it was being built just below them. 
George Bannister, Daniel and Arthur's father, Mary, and Francis all said their final goodbyes to Arthur and Daniel before their execution. Both boys hugged their sisters and told them to be good girls, and then Arthur said he hoped nothing would happen to Frances during her upcoming trial. In the early hours of September 23rd, Arthur and Daniel walked nervously as they were escorted from their cells to the gallows. Arthur and Daniel were tied back to back, and as the nooses were adjusted, Daniel protested that it was too tight and that he couldn't pray. A witness swore he heard Daniel say, innocent, paying for someone else's crime, just before the double trap door sprung at 2.06 a.m. Atlantic time, and the two fell to their deaths. Both Arthur and Daniel were pronounced dead 21 minutes later. The bodies were then placed on stretchers, viewed by the coroner's jury, and then placed in a single pine coffin covered with a black cloth, and lowered into a single grave using the same ropes used to cause their death, forever bound in history and in death. The ultimate price paid for the ruthless murder of Philip Lake, Bertha Ring, and the gross negligence that led to the death of innocent 21-month-old Jackie. Charges against Frances were dropped, but there was no real happy ending here for her. She died approximately 10 years later from pulmonary tuberculosis. According to the provincial archives, May died in 1969. However, a copy of her death certificate was not attached. The archive records only go to 1969 and birth and marriage certificates even earlier than that. What became of Mary? I don't know, but hopefully she was able to pull herself out of the trappings of her family, heal from any trauma, and lead a happy life. Betty Ann was adopted by Philip's sister and husband, and her last name was officially changed to Cuthbertson. She got married at only 17. We can only hope she had a well-deserved happy life. This brings us to the end of part two of extortion and murder in the backwoods. Hope you'll join me in two weeks time on the next case we'll be covering. And just as a side note, I should also mention that the Dorchester courthouse, I believe burned down in the 1960s and was never rebuilt. Um, However, the Dorchester jail is still standing. It's no longer used as a jail. It was purchased a couple of years ago by a gentleman who turned it into a bed and breakfast. So if you would like to sleep on death row, there are um, several options for you to choose from. And I'll post a copy of the website to that. Uh, They do several events during the year, um, but I'll post the website and you guys can take a look if you're interested. If you want to listen to exclusive episodes, ad-free and early release episodes, head over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. There are several different options ranging from armchair detective to co-producer. The link is in the description. I would also like to thank all of those of you who've taken the time to leave me a positive review. I really appreciate all of your support. Make sure you check us out at truecrimerealtimepod.com to read the true crime article on this episode, as well as see the accompanying photos. If you have questions, comments, or case suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at truecrimerealtimepod at gmail.com or complete the case submission form on our website. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of True Crime Real Time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating and leave us a review. This will help our reach and bring more attention to the cases we cover.
Oh, oh, oh.